My name is James. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to lead us now in the study of God's Word. Uh, we're starting a new series, or we did last week, entitled Living in the Real World, looking at the book of First Peter. And so if you have a Bible or you want to grab one from the seat back in front of you, let's uh, turn to First Peter chapter 1. That'll be found on page 1014 if you grabbed a Bible from the back of the seat in front of you. Or if you brought your own Bible, it'll be somewhere near the back. Uh, as you turn there, let's pray together. Father, we're just so thankful to be your children. Uh, Father, we're thankful for the things that are happening in our lives, whether that's uh, new children being born or teams being sent on mission or just the everyday joys of, of following you. Father, as we read now from your word and hear some of the things that you've done on our behalf through Jesus Christ, I pray that you'd open our eyes to see these realities. Father, I pray that you just give us thankful hearts and, and lives that would reflect what we see. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, during the summer, we went through the book of Exodus, and in order to do that, uh, in order to get through the part of the book we were studying, we had to move pretty quickly. And so the last time I was up here, I preached actually two chapters in, in the book of Exodus, and it presented a set of challenges as you have to try to decide, okay, within two chapters, what are you going to focus on? Uh, last week, Pastor Ray had the opposite challenge as he preached a sermon from two verses in the book of First Peter. And I was kind of wondering, how is he going to handle just two verses? How do you get a whole sermon out of that? Uh, but as we saw, those verses were actually packed with meaning, and they had a lot to say about our identity as followers of Jesus Christ. First, our identity in regards to God, and second, our identity in regards to the world around us. So we looked at the phrase, elect exiles, or as I like to say, chosen outcasts. So on the one hand, we're chosen by God, according to the foreknowledge of the Father and the sanctification of the Holy Spirit for obedience to Christ. But on the other hand, we're, cho or we're outsiders or exiles in regards to the world around us. And there's a relationship between these two identities. It's because we've been chosen by God and set apart for, for His purposes that there's ways in which we're kind of outsiders or strangers in relationship to the world around us. I read a quote this week that resonated with me. Uh, the person says this, we live in strange times. Or the times we live in make strangers out of folks like me. I'm not sure which it is. So to put it simply, Peter is writing to a group of Christians who are struggling to know what does it look like to be faithful to Jesus in everyday life situations? What does it look like to follow Jesus in the real world? That's why we called this series Living in the Real World because we're asking those questions. And I hope that this resonates with us as we read. I hope that there's a way that we can relate to this. Uh, this is one of the things I love about the book of 1 Peter, that even though it was written almost 2,000 years ago in a different language on the other side of the world in a different cultural setting, it still has things that are applicable to us right here, right now in Burnaby in 2017 as we follow Jesus. Because we're still asking these same questions. We're still asking, what does it look like to be, for me to be faithful to Jesus and yet live in the real world in a meaningful way? Uh, we, we have this question in, in all kinds of contexts. And so for some of us, we have this question at work, right? Where we're in an industry or we're, we have a boss who asks us to do things that we don't always know how it lines up with the faith in Jesus that we have. Uh, maybe you're in an industry where people often tell you, well, that's just the way things are in this industry and you can't really do anything about it. That's just the way things are and you're going to have to come to terms with that. But there's, there's an aspect in which you don't know how you feel about some things that are happening. And you wonder, how does my faith 
relate to this? How should my faith impact the way I, I engage in these conversations? Uh, some of you are parents and you, you wonder, how does my faith relate to my kids and, and what they're being taught, whether in the media or whether in school? And, and you wonder, how do I have conversations with my kids about faith and, and God and, and the realities that he's taught us about when they're being bombarded with all kinds of different messaging? Uh, some of us ask this question in regards to politics. We're concerned about social issues and we wonder, what's the best way for a Christian to engage in, in these kinds of things? Uh, some people think that we need to reform the existing parties and try to be a positive influence there. Others think we need to present an alternative. But either way, people are wrestling with these questions of how to be faithful to Jesus. And, and, and the thing is, if we're at all concerned about following Jesus closely, we're going to have these areas in our life where these tensions exist because following Jesus uh, kind of butts up against the rest of society. It kind of is in tension with the rest of the way the world is living. And so Peter writes to people who are experiencing these questions, and we're going to keep reading what he read starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We'll stop here for now. Your outline says this, as believers, there are foundational realities we can embrace. I read someone this week who wrote about these verses that they provide a theological and a hermeneutical basis for the Christian life. That's just a really fancy way of saying that Peter's laying down some foundational realities or some important truths about the Christian life as we seek to live it out. Peter's setting a foundation right at the beginning. He's, he's starting with what's foundational to every believer everywhere at all times. And I found this interesting because I imagine that probably not all of us would start this way if we were writing this letter. Or to put it the other way around, we might not want Peter to start this way as he writes this letter. See, we just talked about how we come to a, a, the Bible with all these real-life questions. We have all these situations in our mind where we're going through this real-life situation, and a lot of us, a lot of the time, we want practical answers for these situations. We want practical steps to take. We want someone to say, okay, if this is what you're going through, do this, and then do this, and then do this. Right? We see this in literature all the time, where the, the books that sell are the ones that are immediately practical to what we're going through. And so I find it interesting that Peter doesn't start with practical, but starts with foundational. And, and there's a reason for this, and, and he will go on to be practical later on, but it's interesting that he starts with foundational. See, what we're going to see is that it's just as relevant to our lives as believers, it's just as relevant to living as disciples in the real world, but we might not see the relevance right away. I was reminded of a movie I watched as a kid growing up uh, called The Karate Kid. I don't know if any of you guys have seen this movie, but in a nutshell, there's this boy named Daniel who is moved from, uh, moved from one city to the next, and he's in a new school, and he quickly becomes a target of some bullies. And these bullies are, are beating him up and doing all kinds of things, and so Daniel decides that he needs to learn karate to defend himself. So he starts trying to learn, he starts trying to teach himself, but eventually he realizes that the caretaker of his building, Mr. Miyagi, is actually a karate master. And so Daniel convinces Mr. Miyagi to teach him karate. So Daniel gets to the first day of class, and he's excited to learn karate. And Mr. Miyagi says, okay, first things first, I'm the teacher. 
you're the student, you do what I say, no questions asked. And Daniel says, yes, sir. And so they're off, and Mr. Miyagi says, okay, Daniel, do you see those uh, dirty old cars over there? And Daniel says, yes. He says, I want you to wash and wax all of those cars. And Daniel says, why would I? No questions. And so Daniel proceeds to wash all these cars. And if you've ever heard the phrase wax on, wax off, uh, this is where that comes from. So Daniel waxes the cars, wax on, wax off, does the whole, spends the whole day doing this, comes back to Mr. Miyagi at the end of the day. Mr. Miyagi says, okay, that's all we have time for today. Come back tomorrow and we'll do something else. Daniel's confused and he goes home. And what happens is the whole entire week, Daniel comes to Mr. Miyagi to learn karate. Mr. Miyagi says, okay, do uh, paint the fence or paint the house or sand the deck, some kind of chore. Daniel does that thing the whole day, comes back to Mr. Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi says, okay, that's good for today. You can go home now. And so by about day four, Daniel's frustrated. He's tired. He's confused. And he decides he's going to have a conversation with Mr. Miyagi because he's ready to walk away because this is not what he expected. Daniel basically says, okay, I came to learn karate. There's actually people bullying me at school, so this is important to me. And all you're doing is using me as free labor so that you can get a bunch of jobs done around your house. And Daniel's ready to storm off. But Mr. Miyagi says, okay, show me, wax on, wax off. And Daniel doesn't see the point, but sure, wax on, wax off. And Mr. Miyagi actually says, no, do it, do it properly. Wax on, wax off. And they go through all the motions that Daniel's learned in that week as he's been doing things. And then there's this, this really cool thing that happens. Mr. Miyagi says, okay, show me wax on. And as he says that, he screams at the top of his lungs and throws a punch at Daniel, who without even thinking about it, does wax on and blocks the punch. And there's this stunned look that comes upon his face because he realizes that what Mr. Miyagi's been doing has actually been helping him this whole time. You see, Daniel came expecting, you know, if, if they punch at you like this, then you're going to block it like this. Or if they kick you, this is how you defend yourself. He was expecting that kind of thing. But instead, Mr. Miyagi gave him a foundation so that he could actually learn to defend whatever was thrown at him. And this is where I see the connection to the text that we have today, where Peter is not giving us a, okay, if this is your situation, then here's what you do. If this is, what he's actually giving us is a foundation so that we'll be able to, to handle anything that life throws at us as we live for Jesus in the real world. And so we're going to see these foundational things that, that Peter is, is laying down for us. And he starts by, by using this imagery that is really powerful imagery of being born again. It, it says uh, in the text that God has, according to his great mercy, caused us to be born again. Uh, this language comes from John chapter 3, where Jesus uh, says something similar to Nicodemus, who's asked him about the kingdom of God. Jesus says, it's necessary for you to be born again. And really simply put, to be born again is to be made alive by the Spirit of God. So the Bible teaches that uh, when we're born, we're born sinful, we're born fallen, we're born dead in regards to the things of God. And God, by his Holy Spirit, is able to make us alive through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, it's an incredible thing. And, and it's an especially useful language for Peter to use because it's hard to think of something that's more all-encompassing than a new birth. Uh, Karen Jobes, a commentator, wrote this. Uh, she said, Just as people receive their ethnic identity, their citizenship, their socioeconomic class, and their innate potentialities from their biological parents, Christians have a new identity and new citizenship that redefines their relationship with society and transforms their identity and character. You see, what the truth is that you're never just born, you're always born into something. 
Uh, you're always born into a certain set of realities and a certain set of circumstances. And so for some of you, you were born into a great set of realities. You maybe had a great situation that you were born into. Uh, for others, maybe the situation you were born into was one that you needed to overcome throughout your life. But we're all born into something. Uh, we see this really obviously in the case of, of royalty. So the royal family has just announced that they're having another baby. And, you know, right away this child will be born a son and daughter of the queen, or the queen and king. Uh, this child will be born with prestige, with privilege, and, and born into a really unique context. Uh, but regardless, we're all born into certain situations and circumstances. And the same is true as we're born again. Uh, there's a couple realities, or uh, many realities that we're born into as followers of Jesus. And your outline says this one, first of all. Number one, we have a living hope for the future. Peter starts with the future. Uh, he talks about the future all throughout his letter. And he, he ends there as well because this is something vitally important for Peter in, in terms of Christian worldview, that we have a living hope for the future. He uses the words of inheritance. He says there's an inheritance that's being kept in heaven for you, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Or as another commentator put it, untouched by death, unstained by evil, and unimpaired by time. And so as believers, we have this hope that there's an inheritance being kept for us. But not only that, we learn from the text that we ourselves are being guarded through faith for that inheritance that's ready to be revealed. So there's this kind of dual thing that's happening where our inheritance is being guarded and we also are being guarded for that salvation in the last day. Uh, it's this incredible hope for the future. And what you'll see throughout the Bible and throughout Christianity up until today is this has always been a theme that's right at the heart of what it means to be a believer, uh, to have this incredible hope for the future. Now, unfortunately, sometimes as, as followers of Jesus in the context that we find ourselves, if, if we're in a position of affluence or if we're in a position where things are going well, we can kind of downplay this at points. Uh, when things are going well, it's easy to kind of lose sight of how amazing a future hope is because we actually get comfortable with things as they are right now. And so you might hear people say, you know, it'll be nice when Jesus comes back, but I hope he does it, you know, after I graduate. Or, you know, I hope he does it after I get married or, or fill in the blank. And, and we say these things because we don't have a big enough vision of how incredible this future hope is. It, it's really such an incredible thing. And the interesting thing that I noticed about this future hope as we read in 1 Peter is that it's actually based upon present realities. Uh, what I mean by that is the future hope that we have isn't just some kind of distant thing in the future. It's actually a hope that we have because of things that are actually happening right now. Uh, to put it another way, the future starts now. And so we read in the text that Jesus has already risen from the dead. He's already ascended into heaven and reigning over all things. We read in the text that we already have an inheritance in heaven that's waiting for us. We already have salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last day. And so there's a sense in which our hope for the future isn't some hypothetical, like maybe, hopefully, someday this might or may not happen. This is actually a sure hope for the future because it's based upon things that are happening in the present right now. Based on things that have happened already in the past and things that are happening in the present right now. And because of this, the future hope that we have actually has major implications for how we live in the present. It actually has major implications for how we live right now as followers of Jesus. And we're going to go on to read these starting now in verse 6. 
In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Your outline says this, number two, we have a reason for joy in the midst of present trials and sufferings. And this is where we see a bit of a tension, right? Because on the one hand, we have this incredible joy in the future hope that God is going to accomplish for us and the future salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus. But on the other hand, there's this, there's this present pain and trials that we can experience that cause us grief. And so there's this kind of interesting fact where as believers, we're sorrowful in, in some circumstances, yet always rejoicing. It's kind of hard to wrap our heads around. In fact, there was one person I read this week who, who argued that actually joy is just for the future. Uh, this guy was saying that actually, you know, joy is just something in the future. In the present, it's just pain and suffering, and, and joy is just for the future when Jesus returns. Now, I, I can see kind of his thought process and why he might go there, but the problem is that's not what the text says. Uh, the text talks about a legitimate cause for joy, even in present sufferings. And so what Peter's helping us to do is he's helping us to get context and perspective. Notice that he doesn't make light of the sufferings that the people are going through. Uh, he, he brings them up over and over again throughout this letter, the pain and the suffering that they're facing. He doesn't try to belittle what people are going through or make it seem like, oh, that's not a big deal or that's just, that's just a small thing. He doesn't do that. What he does instead is he magnifies or he, or he makes big what God is doing in the midst of those things. He's helping people to see that there's more going on than the suffering that they're experiencing. And I use the language of seeing intentionally because if you look at verses 3 to 9 that we just read in, in the text, there's not very many things that we can actually see with our eyes that are being described. So if you look through, just take a glance. We talk about God the Father. We can't see him with our eyes right now. We talk about our inheritance in heaven, which we can't see. Uh, we talk about Jesus Christ, and it says explicitly we can't see him. And so there's a sense in which there's all these things happening, what we can't see. And the one thing in all these things that we can see are the various trials that we're facing. And I don't know about you, but sometimes as, as, a, as a person, it's easy to kind of fixate on what's right in front of my eyes. Uh, we tend to be people who focus just on what's right in front of us and can forget about all kinds of other things that are happening around us. Or in this case, things that God's doing in the midst of what's right in front of us. What Peter's helping us to see here is there's more going on than we can see in any given situation. Uh, it reminds me of a story from when I was in high school. Uh, my friend had, given, uh, had, had put his money in a vending machine to get some candy, and the mechanism turned, and the candy kind of fell, but it, it got caught in the mechanism, so it didn't drop all the way to the slot. And so my friend's sitting there just kind of like bummed out about this. And, and so I decided, you know what? The candy's on the bottom row. The opening is kind of, kind of wide, and so I thought, you know, maybe I'll be able to help him and do a nice good deed for the day. And so I kind of got down, and I, I reached my hand in and around and over, and kind of got my two fingers up in there and just pinched the candy, brought it out, and gave it to my friend, feeling really good about the nice thing that I had just done. Unfortunately, 
my teacher walked around the corner just as I had my hand in the machine pulling out the candy, and that was all he saw. Now, this is kind of a silly example, but, but the idea is there was more going on that he could see that changed the way he saw the situation. And if he was going just by what he saw, I would be in big trouble. But once he got some context, it changed the way he approached the situation. Uh, that's what Peter's trying to do, except he's doing it on a serious, on a serious scale. He's showing us that the, the sufferings and the trials that we're experiencing are actually happening in the context of what God's already doing. Uh, they're happening in the context of the future hope that we have. And what he's going to go on to talk about is how they're actually happening in the context of what God is doing to our faith. You see, he goes on to say that our faith is actually being strengthened and proved genuine in the things that we go through. And, and to, to tell us this, Peter's going to make a comparison between faith and gold. I'm going to read it for us in verse 7. He says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a little bit of a confusing sentence, but what Peter's essentially saying is that gold and faith have a couple things in common. First, both are precious, and second, both of them go through the fire. So with gold, the fire is literal. It's gold that passes through fire, and the imperfections are burned away, and it's, it's proved pure. Uh, and our faith also goes through fire metaphorically in the sufferings and trials that we go through as followers of Jesus. So those are things that faith and gold have in common. But Peter says the difference between them is that faith is more precious than gold because gold is perishable and faith is not. Now we'll pause there for a second because when I first read this, I was a little bit confused because when I think of gold, I usually don't think of something that's perishable. Right? For us, when we think of things that are perishable or imperishable, at least my mind right away goes to a food bank. So if we collect non-perishable food items, we're talking about foods that will last, you know, a few months or maybe a few years in our pantry. And we talk about things that are perishable, we talk about things that go bad after a couple days or a couple weeks. And, and so if that's your mindset, this is going to be a little bit confusing, but Peter's not speaking kind of short-term or even long-term. He's talking about in the perspective of eternity. And he goes on to use this idea later in chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, where he says this, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So again, we see these words precious and perishable. And Peter's saying, if you want to know what's precious, if you want to know what's actually valuable and worth something, ask yourself the question, when Jesus returns on that last day, is it going to be worth anything? And he's saying, in that perspective, gold is perishable. And in that perspective, faith is the most precious thing you can ever have. I love the way that the message puts this verse. They say, pure gold put in the fire comes out proved pure. Genuine faith put through this suffering comes out proved genuine. When Jesus wraps this all up, it's your faith, not your gold, that God will have on display as evidence of his victory. So Peter holds up gold, which is universally, historically, always by all people regarded as something that's the most valuable and the most treasured of all things. And he says, compared to, compared to gold, faith is actually more important because it's going to be what matters in the end. And, and so what Peter's done, he's given us perspective. He said, think about the trials that you're going through in the context of the future hope that you have and recognize that God is actually strengthening your faith, which at the end of the day is going to be the most important thing he could be doing. 
It's an incredible perspective that we have. And, and there's implications for how we live our lives out of this perspective. Now, I, I talk about implications because you might have noticed that in verses 3 to 9, there's actually no commands that Peter gives to us. Uh, he doesn't say, do this or be like this or, or do this. It's actually one big description. And like I said, it has implication, but there's actually no direct commandments from Peter. And, and as I was thinking about this week, I wondered to myself how accurate this description is. Now, let me qualify what I mean by that. I don't mean to question the description of what God is doing. I think that's 100% certain, that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope, that we have this inheritance in heaven, that he's raised Jesus from the dead. All these things I don't question. But when you look at verse 6 in the description that follows of the people that Peter is writing to, it seems like the language he's using is quite optimistic to describe them. Right? He says, you rejoice in the midst of sufferings. Uh, you, you love Jesus even though you can't see him. You love Jesus even though, or you believe in Jesus even though you can't see him. And then he says, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And I look at that language and I say, that seems like pretty optimistic language. Is, is, could this description be accurate to the people that Peter's writing to? Well, as I thought about that this week, I was reminded of a a time when I was an intern here at the church, when I was given the assignment to do a devotional message at a ministry called The Alongside. Uh, now, for those of you who don't know, Alongside is a ministry of Willingdon Church for people who are going through cancer or cancer diagnoses and, and for their families as well. And so I was told that I had to give a devotional message in this meeting uh, for the Alongside uh, people. And I remember just feeling so inadequate to do this. Like, who am I to go into this room with these people going through all kinds of terrible suffering and, and real problems and, and try to speak into their lives? And, and so I ended up kind of working it through and, and figuring out what I was going to say. I, I, I decided to say something similar to what we've talked about this morning. And I just thought, okay, I'll, I'll just do my best to encourage these people. You see, I was expecting that I was going to go into the room and, and there would be a lot of bitterness There'd be a lot of anger towards God that people would be, you know, asking questions like, why could God let this happen to me? Why, why would God let this happen to me after I've done all these things for him? And so I'm, I'm sitting there getting ready to go up to speak. And right before I go up to speak, uh, there's another guy who comes up, a young man who shares his testimony. He was right in the middle of a cancer diagnosis. He was battling cancer at that time. And, and what he said blew me away. He said, yeah, it's not... I, I'm not happy about what I'm going through. Uh, I, I don't like what I'm going through, but he said, you know what? I actually, I just love Jesus so much. He's like, the crazy thing is this has actually brought me closer to Jesus. And so I'm actually really, really thankful that God has, has allowed this to happen so that I can come closer to him in this time because I just love Jesus so much. And, and it was just this incredible moment where I, I, thought, I, I thought I was gonna be the one bringing encouragement and, and I ended up being the one encouraged. Because this young man was living out the description of this passage. He had genuine joy even in the midst of some of the worst circumstances that could happen. Oh, I see this sometimes when, when we have teams come back from mission, uh, mission trips, especially in third world countries, where one of the things they notice right off the bat usually is that the church there, that they have nothing. People often come back and say, the Christians in these places of the world, they don't have the resources we, don't ha we have. They don't have the things we have. Their daily needs aren't met oftentimes. And they say, but yet they have this incredible joy just in God himself. 
And they're blown away by this. They don't know how to, how to, like, what's going on there. And what's going on there is that these people actually fit this description. And so when we read these verses, I don't think we should be too quick to say, well, that's just too optimistic or that's just too idealistic. No, there actually are people who live into these realities. And it's only possible, not because these people are so special, but it's because what God has done that we can live in this way. Now, of course, when Peter wrote this letter, I'm sure that not every single person in the church that he wrote to would, would resonate with these words. I imagine as these words were read and Peter's talking about how these people rejoice in suffering and they love Jesus even though they can't see him, I imagine there would have been people in that room kind of squirming in their seats. You know, and just thinking about maybe how the, the day before they had just been complaining and complaining or, or thinking bitter thoughts. And I imagine they would have been kind of squirming in their seats thinking, oh, yeah, Peter, I wish that described me, but I'm not sure that it does. And us here today in this room, we need to ask ourselves the question, does this describe us or would Peter have to switch it around to make it describe us? Does this describe us as a church or would Peter need to change the description to make it fit? Now, the point of this is not to make us feel bad and make us feel like, oh, we're just failures and we'll never live up to this. The point of this is to recognize that this is an invitation to live with real joy in the present because God has actually done these things on our behalf through Jesus Christ. This is an invitation not to just feel bad that we don't measure up, but actually to enter into this life that Jesus has provided for us in his death and resurrection on the cross. You see, to not live in light of what, what has been revealed to us is selling ourselves short. Uh, but more than that, to not live in light of what has been revealed to us is actually an insult to those who went before who didn't know what we know. Let's keep reading now in verse 10. It says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Your outline says this, number three, that we are extremely privileged to know what we know. See, Peter's talking about these Old Testament prophets who on the one hand... In their day, they were the ones who had received just this incredible revelation from God. They had received these incredible uh, prophecies from God. And on the one hand, they knew a lot. Uh, but on the other hand, there were so many things that they didn't know about when these things would take place, who would fulfill these prophecies, what, what the time would be like when these things happened. So you have a man named Isaiah, for example, who's a prophet, and he, he talks about someone who's called the servant of the Lord. And we read in Isaiah about the servant of the Lord that Israel, God's people, were meant to be God's servant, but they had actually failed in the role that God had given them. And so we start reading about this other servant. Nobody really knows who he is, who is, who is part of Israel, but it also meant to draw Israel back to God in a right relationship with him. And then we read about this servant, and nobody knows who he is, but this servant is meant to proclaim God's salvation to the ends of the earth. And we read about this servant. Nobody knows who he is in Isaiah 53. who says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought our peace. And with his wounds we are healed. 
So Isaiah makes these prophecies and and so much is revealed, but nobody knows who this is. And and for generations, people are asking the question of when are these things actually going to happen and who's going to be the one that enacts these things? And and for years and years, they just lived in this mystery of, okay, when is this actually going to take place? We live in a time when Jesus has come and he has been the one to whom the prophets foretold. See, we actually know who the prophet was was talking about. We actually know who the prophets were talking about because Jesus has come and fulfilled these things. So we live in a time when we don't need to guess. We don't need to guess who this was about. We actually know Jesus has fulfilled these things and given us new life. And the text is saying, recognize how privileged we are to know these things. And recognize how silly it is not to live in light of these things now that they have been revealed to us. Now there might be some of us here today who are maybe hearing some of this stuff for the first time. Maybe you came for a baby dedication, you're invited, or maybe you came for some other reason. And you're listening to this and you're, you're wondering, how can these realities be my realities? Maybe the Holy Spirit's uh, doing something in your heart where you just have this sense that I need to do something to give my life to Jesus, to to make these realities my realities. Uh, We we talked about John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, how can I enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus said, you must be born again. And and Nicodemus doesn't understand what that means. He says, Jesus, how can a person be born a second time? That makes no sense. And Jesus says, no, this is a birth that's of the Spirit. And in verse 8, Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And Jesus answers him. And in verse 14, Jesus says these words. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This invitation was for Nicodemus all those years ago, and this invitation is for you this morning. To make a decision to trust in Jesus for your salvation for the first time, even today. Right now, where you're sitting, if this is what God's putting on your heart, you can say in in your heart, God, I want to follow you. Jesus, I want to put my trust in you for the forgiveness of my sins. Would you make me alive by your Holy Spirit? Would you give me this new life? And would you help me to follow you all my days? If you made that decision this morning, I invite you to come talk to me after the service or come go to the Welcome Center, talk to the person who brought you. Uh, But don't leave here today without making that known to someone because we want to celebrate with you. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for these realities. Father, forgive us for often acting as if they're not true. Father, I pray that you just be, help us to be so aware of the ways that you're at work this week. Father, help us to take our eyes off of what we see right in front of us and to remember the things that you're doing. And Father, most of all, we thank you for Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose again victorious. We pray this in his name. Amen.